Milwaukee. It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Wednesday, October 7, 2020. On today's episode, the library's Danielle Belanger will be in discussion with the award-winning author, Will Ferguson. Good afternoon, Hi. everyone. Good afternoon, Will. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, I'm sorry we had some technical uh, difficulties there, but we're very happy you're with us yes. now. Thank you. Yeah, sorry about that. It's all a bit chaotic here, but no uh, thanks for having me. So there were some glitches in the background, but now we're all good. And today I feel honored to have you with me on this thank program. Um, thank you very much also to your publisher, Sheila, at Simon & Schuster for making this possible. So thank you, Sheila. Thank you, Will. I will read a short bio if you don't mind. Uh, will Ferguson is the author of 18 books, most recently The Finder, which tells the story of lost people and lost things in a nutshell, and begs the question of how far one is willing to go to recover things left behind. His previous novel, Shoe on the Roof, was hailed as absurdly funny by Quill and Choir. He won the Scotiabank Giller Prize in 2012 for his novel 419, has won the Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor a record time three times, and has been nominated for the Impact Dublin Literary Award, the RBC Taylor Prize for Literary Nonfiction, and the Commonwealth Writers Prize. He lives in Calgary. So good afternoon and welcome, Hi. Will, to the program Hi. today. Well, thanks for having me on. Sorry about the delay. That was, we worked it out. We figured it all out. No problem. We're all good now. So our uh, audience viewers got to see a little bit of an older interview of you oh. speaking about uh, 419, which when is- When my beard was still dark. Back when <laughs> yes. my beard was, that's several years ago, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is a, a bit timely right now, because as, as I'm sure you're aware, on Monday, they just announced the shortlist for this year's uh, Giller Prize. So I was wondering, are you still following that? Do you look every year to see who's nominated? Once I'm not nominated, I don't care anymore. I just stop <laughs> watching. I get angry and I throw my nose. Of course I follow it. Yes, of course. The Giller is wonderful. Okay. Uh, uh, it's really wonderful. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, uh, long listed this year uh, and I curled up in a corner. And I wept and I wept, but now I'm okay. I'm good. No, no, please don't uh, <laughs> No, the Giller is wonderful. It's, it's really, um, I've always said about the Giller that, you know, we take it for granted that music and cinema have these red carpet events, these glamour events. But before the Giller, um, we never really thought of literature in that way of the red carpet, the glamour, the glitz, the gala. So um, it's nice to see the literary arts treated with the same kind of excitement that uh, the musical arts and the filmic and cinematic and television arts are. So back in the day, the evening that you won for 419, I noticed you were wearing a kilt. <laughs> yes. Can you tell us a little bit about your choice? Well, you know, it was, it, it was honestly just one-upmanship with my wife, to be very frank. Uh, my wife said she was gonna wear her kimono from Japan and she, you know, uh, so I said, well, if you're going to wear a kimono, I thought, what can I do? What can I do? So I went, I went as a Ferguson, I wore the Ferguson tartan. And uh, so we went as a, with the, the kilt and the kimono, the, the two of us. And uh, I'll tell you a, a, an anecdote about that, if you'd like. Um, when you dress in a kilt, 
uh, you're supposed to also carry a ski and do, which is a dagger, a knife in your sock, and a flask of whiskey in your sporin, and uh, a coin, some kind of money. So I had a flask of whiskey, I had the dagger, and uh, I had uh, a toonie, a lucky toonie. So I, it, you have money, you have a weapon, you have drink. It's everything you need for a night on the town in Glasgow. That's the idea. <laughs> but at the event, I ran into, and I'm going to name drop here, so I apologize. Uh, Margaret Atwood was at the event. And she sidled up to me. She's got that 1940s film noir voice. You know, she's like, she, and she said, is there porridge in your sporin? I was like, what? She goes, is there porridge in your sporin? I, it sounded kind of like she was trying to pick me up. I don't know what that means exactly. But she told me, because Margaret Atwood knows everything, uh, she told me that, and I did not know this, as a Scotsman, the son of a Scotsman, the grandfather of a, the grandson of a Scotsman, you're also supposed to carry dry oatmeal in your sporin. And I guess the idea is if you're running across the bog, if you're being chased by the bloody English or something, that you can stop and boil up some porridge. So I learned something in that the, in wearing a gala, and sorry, in wearing a kilt to the 419 uh, Giller uh, event, I did learn that I'm also, I've been doing it wrong all these years. As a Scotsman, you're also supposed to have dried porridge. Well, thank you for sharing that with, <laughs> with right. us. I didn't very know useful, any, very useful information. I, I doubt our audience <laughs> members <laughs> either. Um, so do you have a pick for this year's Giller? I like, I mean, you're always, you shouldn't, but you're always influenced by people that you've met or people that you know, or, and uh, it was many years ago, but uh, I met and had dinner at an event with Shani Mutu and she's lovely. She's absolutely lovely. So I'm, I'm hoping for Shani to win. Shani Mutu, she's, she's a wonderful writer. Uh, Serious Blooms at Night is one of the best novels. I confess I haven't read this one. I've been busy uh, working on my own uh, project. So I haven't been able to read any of the shortlisted authors this year, which I feel bad about. But yeah, I think Shani Mutu is the one I would, I'm, you know, hoping for. Thank you. Thank you for your pick. So changing topics, the topic of your latest novel, The Binder, is very intriguing. Can you please tell us how you came up with the plot and very unique characters? Well, the, the idea behind The Finder is that there are these lost objects and they're all real objects that are really out there and someone's finding them. And it, I thought it came out of a, a magazine article I read in a magazine called Mental Floss years ago, sitting in the bathtub. I still have that magazine. It's all warped. Um, and it, the article was 10 things you should be looking for. And one of the items was the original teddy bear. I remember thinking, someone invented the teddy? I thought the teddy bear just always existed. But no, in 1902, a woman made a, a named Rose Mitchum made a window display at a department store in New York. And Teddy Roosevelt had been in the news because he'd been on a hunting expedition, hunting bears, and he'd refused to shoot a bear cub. <laughs> that was the height of, of humanity back then, that he, he wouldn't shoot a bear cub. And so she, as a joke, she wrote up, she sewed up this bear and called it Teddy's Bear, Teddy Roosevelt. And then people liked it so much they kept making it. The original teddy bear, however, was packed away in mothballs, stored when the store shut down. No one knows where it is. It's probably worth a million dollars. 
to a collector, a toy collector. So I remember thinking, how would you find that? And what would you do if you find, found that? So I kind of started piecing together these lost objects. I did want them to all be real objects in the real world. So I'll give you another quick example. Uh, Muhammad Ali, when he was 18 years old, he was known as Cassius Clay. And he competed uh, as a light heavyweight in the 1960 Rome Olympic Games. He won the gold medal. He came back to Louisville, Kentucky, very proud, wore his gold medal out with his buddies. He was going into a diner and he got stopped because it was segregation, an era of segregation and blacks weren't allowed into the diner. So imagine you've won this medal for your country, you come back to your country and they say, yeah, yeah, but you're not good enough to sit at this diner. So he was so angry, he went out and he threw his gold medal into the Ohio River and it sits there somewhere in the mud even now. So if you wanted to dredge the Ohio River and sift the mud, you would find Muhammad Ali's gold medal. So I thought, what if someone did that, actually dredged the river and found the medal? So the character, the finder is a kind of a dark, uh, mysterious sort of figure who may, people don't think he really exists, but he does. Spoiler alert. I wouldn't write a book called The Finder and nope, there's no finder. So I will, I will spoil that. There is a finder and he's tracking and finding these rare lost objects and a woman named Gaddy is tracking him it's, and no one believes her. She thinks she's, there, she's a little bit off her, off her nut. So I had this dynamic of the hunter and the hunted and then of course it switches and she becomes the hunted. So that was the, the basis, but then I started adding the world of travel writing onto it because it's such a, uh, it's an area, I've been a travel writer for 25 years and uh, it's a very strange world of travel writers and I've never seen it really, as far as I know, I've never really seen it dealt with in fiction. There's a lot of great nonfiction memoirs about being a travel writer. So I thought, what if this finder crosses paths with this, a burnt out travel writer and then things get very complicated. So that was the genesis of the story. So speaking of uh, Thomas Rafferty in the book, this character, is this character loosely based on you? Are there facets <laughs> of yourself in this character? Well, people, so I'll, I'll tell you the key distinction. My last name is Ferguson. His last name is Rafferty. So you can hear it's totally different. It's completely different. He's a burnt out middle-aged travel writer. I'm a burnt out middle-aged former travel writer because I really don't do that so much anymore. So uh, I think he's a heightened version of me. He's like a torqued version. Um, and he's awful. Uh, I don't, I should explain uh, He's, he doesn't have a home. He drinks too much. He's, he's just constantly moving. And the character of Rafferty, if I wanted to be quite sincere about it, is we all come to those moments in our life where we speak where something splits, a job, we move, we get married, we get divorced, some moment that we divide, our life divides. And I think it's human nature to always, no matter how it sorts out, to be kind of wistful about that moment and wonder if this had happened, where would I be now? So I always wonder, I'm married, happily married, I have kids, I have a son who just graduated university, another one uh, in university. Uh, but I always wonder, what if I hadn't stopped traveling? And Thomas Rafferty never stopped traveling. He's you know, in, in his late 40s, almost 50. Oh, I'm older. Uh, but 
I thought, what would have happened to me if I had just kept traveling beyond, beyond the point it was even fun anymore, to the point where it was just almost a compulsion. And that's where the character of Rafferty. So there is a lot of me in him, but no, I don't want people to think that I'm, I'm as a hard drinking, swaggering uh, type of character that he is. Thank you for that. I was, I was hoping maybe it was a heightened version of yourself. Yeah, not exactly right to <laughs> No, no. <laughs> well, what, I should have, what I should have done is I should have fooled you. I should have shown up when the camera with a bottle of whiskey and been like really, and make you think <laughs> that you're actually interviewing Thomas Rafferty because he swears a lot and you'd be muting me every two seconds. I'd be saying something <laughs> awful. He's very politically incorrect. He's very crude. Uh, so you'll be happy to know that that won't happen today. I'm not, I'm not in the mode of Thomas Rafferty. Perfect. I won't ask you if you've traveled to Japan because I know you have. You met your wife there. You're married to a Japanese woman. Uh, but I will ask you, have you visited uh, Christchurch in New Zealand? Yes. And the other locales that you discuss in this book? Yes. So I, I, the book is set in three areas, Okinawa, Japan, and including Hataruma, which is the southernmost tiny little island. And I've been to Hataruma, and then it moves to Christchurch, New Zealand, and then um, the outback of Australia. Uh, so Uluru, it's, it used to be called Ayers Rock. It's the giant red sandstone. If you see it, you'll recognize it. it's a landmark rock. It's the kind of the Australian icon. So I went there and I did a hike throughout that area. And I was in Christchurch, New Zealand, because the book is set um, in Christchurch right after the earthquake uh, and the city was recovering. So I, I, I wasn't in Christchurch in the earthquake. In the novel, Thomas Rafferty is actually in Christchurch when the buildings start falling. Uh, I came to Christchurch many years later to see, and they're still rebuilding. That earthquake was so devastating. Uh, they're still rebuilding and they're still retrofitting their city. Um, and I just thought, what would happen if a travel writer is suddenly thrust into a news event, right? Because travel writers are not journalists. Don't ever tell, let a travel writer tell you they're a journalist. They are not a journalist. Uh, when I was travel writing, uh, the hardest hitting interviews I would do would be with the mayor of a town. So, and I got a, I got this kind of weird bet with myself because I hated interviewing mayors because they're very aware that you're going to be there, maybe printed. So I was up, we went up to, uh, with my brother, Sean, we went up through um, Shakutami and uh, Val, what's the name of the ghost town? Val, Valjean, is that right? I might be getting it wrong. And I went down through Edmonston and every time you interview a mayor, I had a running bet to see if they would ever give a different answer. I would always ask them at the end, tell me what's the best thing about blank, your community, Thunder Bay, Moostra, Shakutami. What is the best thing? And can you guess, I bet you can guess, what did they always, every single mayor say? What do you think? What's the best thing about their town? Can you guess? The people, the people. <laughs> it's always, what's the best thing about you? The people. What's the best thing about Moose Jaw? The people. They, that, they always gave the same answer. And just once, I was waiting. I just once wanted to hear, have a mayor say, the best thing about Thunder Bay is the nature. The people are horrible, but the nature is great. Like, I just wanted one mayor to do that, but they always. So when I say that travel writers are not journalists, that's what I mean. We have the trappings of journalism. We interview and we you know, research, but we don't. Um, it's a very, very subjective. And you could argue journalism is very subjective. Uh, 
travel writing is unapologetically subjective. It's my view. If you and I both did the same trip to Shikudami, you would write a completely different view. Even if we went to the same places and talked to the same people, we would have the same, we'd have totally different views of that. So travel writing is very, very subjective. So without giving away too much about the novel, just one anecdote. I noticed that uh, in Christchurch, we have Rafferty. He is trying to help. He desperately wants to be able to say he saved someone in the rubble, but doesn't. Was that sort of what, what you were just explaining, the difference between, you know, a travel writer and a journalist? Uh, no, no, not in this case, because I don't think journalists would have helped. Journalists would not have helped at all. They would be taking photos of dead. They, they, they take photos of people who are dying. <laughs> like a journalist will watch someone die and take a photo. So I don't think that was really a journalism versus travel writing thing. It was more uh, Rafferty himself is haunted by events that happened to him. So uh, about five years ago, I went to Rwanda in Central Africa. So I traveled um, with a, a friend of mine who escaped the genocide of 1990. He escaped just months before. So we went back to Rwanda today, I should explain, it's a very beautiful country. It's called the land of a thousand hills, very beautiful, um, very safe, very clean, very wounded, an incredibly wounded, scarred and traumatized country even now. And um, so I traveled around Rwanda and I remember thinking the same thought, what would happen if a travel writer got caught during that genocide? So this is what happened without giving it too much away, Rafferty has ghosts. He's haunted by the ghosts of Rwanda and the fact that he didn't help anyone. He was in Rwanda and he didn't help. He just got, he protected himself and he tried to get out. So now he's suddenly in Christchurch and there's another disaster. And this time he's, he's not leaving. He doesn't, he can't leave again. So he's out there digging through the rubble. And the tragedy of Thomas Rafferty is he doesn't save anyone, as you mentioned. He digs and digs and digs. And that's kind of the tragedy of that character. Um, is trying to redeem himself for what he, he didn't do. And I, I, my dad was a, a professor of philosophy, so he really messes up. And I remember my dad saying, you know, it's the things you don't do that haunt you the most. It's the things that you didn't do uh, that you regret the most. And so it's, Rafferty is regretting what he did not do. He did not help people. He did not dive in in Rwanda. So in Christchurch, when the earthquake hits, he throws himself into it to no effect. I think that was very powerful because I almost, I did feel badly for the character at this moment in the book, even though I was not very happy with him a few pages earlier. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, the challenge as a writer is it's very, I think, maybe I just set up too many challenges to my readers, but it's very easy to make readers cheer for a real good guy, a real swell guy. So I thought, what if this guy's broken and rude and, uh, and opinionated, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have humanity. It doesn't mean he isn't, doesn't have a spark in him. And I would argue that Rafferty is, is a broken person, but he's not a bad person. He's broken. And, uh, and uh, I think one, later one of the characters says that she thought he was a misogynist. And then she realized, no, he doesn't hate women. He hates everybody. He's a myth. Like, it's not women. He just hates people. He just doesn't like people. And of course, he doesn't like himself, right? That circles back to, he looks at the humanity in himself and he feels that if, as a reflection of humanity, he's very flawed and he's a failure. 
So I think uh, his attempt to redeem himself in Christchurch is part of that. I'm, I'm glad that, that you, you, you like that scene. I was, I was very pleased when I wrote it, even though it's a very sad scene. I felt it was important to show that, to show him trying. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about the character of uh, Gaddy Rokes? She's also a bit of a broken yes. character. Well, the idea kind of behind this novel, once I had the, the main idea, just the concept of lost objects, I thought, well, I don't want to write just a, a silly Hardy Boys adventure, finding objects. I thought, so if they're looking for lost objects, I wanted the people who are tracking them are kind of lost. Like all those characters are lost in the world. And there's essentially four characters. There's the travel writer that we've talked about. There's the finder who's from Belfast and has his own ghosts. Um, and there's Gaddy Rhodes, who's the Interpol agent, who uh, is also kind of a lost soul and uh, symbolized by a wedding ring that she lost, that she herself lost. And she's obsessed with finding the finder. She wants to find the finder. And uh, something else my dad said, <laughs> he, uh, he said, you know, there's a phrase uh, in philosophy. I think I'm probably gonna get this wrong. Is it Plato? I think it's Plato or maybe Socrates um, said that in the, in the land, no, it's Erasmus. It's later, it's medieval. Uh, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So if everyone's blind and you can see you're king, sounds good. My dad said, no, no, that's not right at all. He said, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is a lunatic. It's crazy. He should be locked up. What are you talking about? I can see trees and you're, what are you talking about? So in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is not king. The one-eyed man is suspected and is isolated and is not. And I saw Gaddy Rhodes. She sees the pattern. Her one ability, she has a lot of flaws, character flaws, but she can see patterns. She can connect things. And she sees all of these patterns pointing to one person, which is crazy. And her boss, uh, Andrea, her boss says, no, no, like the, and Gaddy Rhodes to me, uh, whether the readers feel that, but to me, she is the one-eyed person in a land of blindness, in a, in a land that doesn't see, she can see partially. And that's what makes her uh, both, she's both a fa fails and succeeds in a strange way because she is right. Like again, spoiler alert, uh, she's not, she, all her, her crazy theory about this guy is correct. And uh, she doesn't quite put it together at the end. I don't want to give it away. She goes off very logically, but in, an, in the wrong direction. Uh, so, and the fourth character of the book, uh, and I saw them as couples. So the finder and the Interpol agent, Gaddy Rhodes, are almost like a couple. Like a, a, and they all have dysfunctional marriages. They all have broken marriages. So, so they're all groping towards something. And then Rafferty is paired up with a, a travel photographer, uh, sorry, a war photographer named Tamson Green, whose personality is based largely on a dear friend of mine uh, who I went to high school with. She was my prom date, actually. Um, and she passed away much too young in her 30s with an aneurysm. But how Tamson talks and how she deals with the world and even some of the things she says comes right out of an old friend of mine that I knew for, we went to high school together and kind of grew up, uh, Andrea Golosky. So uh, I wanted to kind of put these four broken people together and uh, let the story play out.
so how were you able to you came up with the four characters and they all sort of have a theme within the larger theme but how were you able to kind of intersperse or intercross their lives with one another uh, the way the key to doing that is to really annoy your wife which is what i did because what i do is i'm old school i, I studied film uh uh in in the pre-digital age and we all film always used color-coded index cards for characters and scenes so you would lay out and i i still do that so uh what i do is i you have the story arcs each character and then you think how do they relate how do how can i bring them together how can i bring these characters so they collide and i i bought a bunch of colored index cards i do this every time uh and i so for example tamson green i put her on a green index card rafferty's kind of sad i put him on a blue card and then uh when there's character scenes i would cut them you know and, and combine them or staple them sometimes and then i lay them out and i sorry i write the scene so rafferty insults millennial blogger that's a scene <laughs> it's just, was as someone from gen x i enjoyed that scene um and uh, you know christchurch collapses uh, the Japanese detective finds the body. You know, these are all scenes. I don't think in chapters because you never really know how many scenes are in a chapter. I just think in scenes. And sometimes two or three scenes are in one chapter. Sometimes one scene is its own chapter. So then I lay them all. This is the part where annoying your wife comes in. This is that part of the, of the process. And it's an important part of the process. As a writer, if you're not annoying your spouse, I think you're not doing something right. So I lay them all out on the dining room table because my office is very cramped and I lay them all out. Uh, actually, this isn't even my office because my office is so densely packed. I just grabbed my, my kids room to do this. Um, and just realized, yeah, that's not, that's not my blouse in the back. Uh, I anyway, was going to so say, that's so <laughs> disorderly. No, you know, if, if mine looks like a rabbit hole, if you've ever seen where they put cameras down a rabbit hole or a, that's what it looks like. So it would be me surrounded by. So anyway, I, I take over the dining room table. I lay out all the cards and sometimes on the floor, if it's a long 419 was so, so complicated, I put it on the floor and I walk around and I look and I try to move the colors around. So they alternate. And I have a weird visual theory, which is probably not true. I have no empirical evidence, but my feeling is, if it's an interesting visual pattern, the story will be interesting. So if it's like green, green, blue, yellow, green, green, blue, red, that's a good pattern. But if it's blue, 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 green, 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 that's not a good pattern. Or if it's blue, green, blue, green, blue, green, that's not good either. You like to have blue, blue, green. So uh, pink, I think, um, I think Catherine, the girl in New Zealand was soft pink. So I would try to move them around. So what you do is you kind of move the, the, the scenes around again and again and again. And then you try to look if there is some visual connection between one scene and the next. So if she's by the ocean in Christchurch, is he by the coast in Northern New Zealand? Like, would there be a nice segue? Doesn't always work. So I do this for a couple of days and my wife will come in. She always recognizes this, uh, part of the process and she she had groceries and she saw me she went oh, this again <laughs> so for a couple of days i commandeer and i walk around and i mutter to myself and uh have you ever have you seen the movie close encounters of the third kind 
Have you ever seen that movie? Yes, but many, many years ago. Well, do you remember one of the characters, Richard Dreyfuss, he's obsessed with this image of a mountain, of the devil, you know, the giant peak, and he starts making his mashed potatoes into it. I don't know if you remember, everywhere he goes, he sees this mountain. That's where the aliens are coming. And uh, I remember the scene where he just suddenly at the table, he just starts putting the mashed potatoes up and making a mountain. That's what I'm like when I'm writing the book. It's suddenly everything is everywhere and I'm looking for patterns. And uh, yeah, that goes on depending on how complicated the plot is. Um, the shoe on the roof was a much more straightforward plot. So I, I think I just used the end table. Uh, for the finder, I used the dining room table. But I remember 419, I had the whole floor of the dining room and the part of the living room uh, for about a week. <laughs> because I just, I walk around and then you're trying to fit it together. Um, I like complicated, complex novels. That's what I enjoy. I don't enjoy a novel that you breeze through with a lot of novels to me recently have become more and more like novellas with just one story idea, one twist, and that's it. And they're becoming thinner and thinner and thinner uh, to the point where they're, it's almost like reading a short story, some novels. And I like the old brawling, like Dostoevsky or Dickens, you know, the olds with lots of characters. I like an enriched novel. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's just subjective, right? That's just your own feeling. That's just your own opinion. And that's my feeling. So this is definitely an epic novel. Um, I will just show it up here to the audience if they haven't seen it. I know we have it at the library, but I think we just recently acquired it because it just came out uh, in September. Um, I wanted to ask, were you involved in choosing the cover art? Well, uh, I, I, I'll tell you the, the, the awful truth about publishing. Uh, unless you're Douglas Copeland, who is a designer, and he's training his visual art. So he, I believe Douglas often designs his own covers. I'm not a design thing. But I remember my very first book, I was so naive and I thought, it's my book. So I'm involved in every pro step of the process. Um, and my very first book was called, uh, it was a collection of humor essays, humor, uh, called Why I Hate Canadians. And uh, I was, it was my first book, I was all excited and I sent in a bunch of ideas for covers. And I thought, why don't you have a black cover with a red maple leaf nailed to the ground? And then it says, why I and hate will be scratched Canadians. I said, what do you think of that? And they said, great idea, author. And then I got the book and it was a soft green cover with a Mountie. <laughs> so it was the exact opposite. And it took me years to realize that uh, the receptionist at a publisher probably has more influence on the cover than the author, because when they're stuck, they always go to the receptionist. They go, uh, Kevin, what do you think? These two, he goes, uh, that one, good. And they go in. Whereas they don't trust authors because authors always want often to have their friend's art on the cover or their kid's art on the cover, or they're, they're the, the feeling in publishing is, and it's fair, is that you're a word person, you're an author, you're not a designer. So they do send you covers and you can kind of get uh, try to change it or I really like this one the finder in the past I won't single out covers but there's some covers I really didn't like but the publisher would tweak it a little bit to keep you happy but as far as a cover concept it's very hard for an author or maybe just me maybe other authors can pull it off but from my experience I can recommend and suggest 
cover ideas, concepts, but I'm just one voice of marketing, sales, editorial. I'm just one of them. I know I was really happy with 419 cover because when we went to do the cover and the designer really listened, which is uh, more unusual than you'd think, I said, you know, it's a book set in Africa. Don't do like a black and white grim photo. Africa's always black and white and grim. And it's a cyber crime novel. So don't put like a computer screen glowing and a guy typing with lights and computer. And I said, what I would love is a cover that looks like a movie poster. And that's exactly what they did. I think 419 looks like a, like a really good movie poster. So they do, they do listen, um, but they certainly don't defer to authors. Uh, and when they sent me this one, I really liked it. I, I was really happy with this one because there is an image of snakes running through it. Uh, and throughout the book, there's an image of serpents and snakes. And uh, so I was happy with this one. I'm not, like I said, there are books where I wasn't. Uh, once or twice, if you raise a big fuss, they'll change it if you raise a, a big, big fuss. But that's, uh, you, have to, you have to choose your battles carefully. You don't want to use up all your currency changing a font. You'd ra I'd rather save that for when I really need the publisher to do something for me. That's so, advice for all young authors. <laughs> Thank you. There is a point in the book where uh, your, the character Gaddy Rhodes shows up at a couple's uh, home and immediately says, no, that's not a Pollock. Is this based on real life? I'm sorry, um, not a what? Oh, Pollock. Oh, Pollock. Jackson Pollock. Yes, yes. That's, that's, that's based on a, uh, a, real, a real incident. They found, a, but it was the opposite. They found a Jackson Pollock and they thought it was a drop cloth. So Jackson Pollock is the painter. He just splattered paint. Um, he just the, dribbled it. Yes, they called the him, action painting that looks like yes. dribbles. Yeah, they called him Jack the Dribbler. Um, Jack the Dripper, sorry, Jack the Dripper. And uh, I had read, a, I, just, I just wanted uh, to show, because poor Gaddy, like no one believes her. She gets demoted. She gets outplayed. I wanted to at least show the reader that she is smart. Like she's very intelligent. And uh, I had read the opposite, which is uh, they had found a, an original Jackson Pollock worth millions, and they thought it was a drop cloth. Was that a, they thought it was just some painting or, or maybe a tester. And it turned out it was a Jackson Pollock and it was worth millions. So I, uh, I did a, I twisted it and it was a couple, a young kind of upwardly mobile couple, couple who are convinced that they have found a Jackson Pollock and Gaddy looks at it and says, that's a drop cloth. Um, and she points out the color that their, their closet is painted. So that was a kind of, I turned the real story upside down in that case. So because throughout the novel, uh, priceless kind of items are being searched for, is there an item that you would travel the world if we were not in a pandemic currently to uh, get your hands on? So, an ob well, I tell you the one thing that always haunts me and I, I uh, is as a writer, so as an author. So Ernest Hemingway, uh, if you've read uh, a, a movable feast, which is set, I'm the, uh, the ironic thing is I'm not a big Hemingway fan. I don't I, of his right of his fiction because it's very stripped down. It's very macho. Um, I don't think he really uses the, the the layers and nuance of the English language, the richness of English. English is such a hodgepodge of Latin, French, Scandinavian. It's such a you can do such a nice stew with English. I don't think Hemingway really takes advantage of that. That said, I love his nonfiction. A Movable Feast about his time in Paris is one of the funniest 
and most um, insightful books on writing and living abroad. But while he was in Paris, and he tells the story in Immovable Feast, he was kind of at ends about writing. He hadn't really succeeded. He wasn't famous. And when he wrote, he used to type on a copy paper, you know, the old copy papers. So that way he would make an instant copy of every novel. So as he typed, he would do a copy and then he would separate them. That way, very smart, right? It, it, this is before, this is back in the 20s, 1920s. So that way he could give it to his agent or a publisher and he'd always have that, that, uh, that copy. So he went off on a retreat and he was feeling down. He went out in, out in the country of France and his wife at the time thought, and he, he wrote to her letter, I'm not, I'm not getting any writing done, the project I'm working on, I've given up on it. And so she thought she would uh, motivate him and inspire him. And so she thought, I'll go surprise him, my husband, in this villa. And I'll bring his, his manuscripts so he can work. So she packed up all of his manuscripts that he had. I think there were three, including the copies. She didn't realize that this is... So she packed up his original and the manuscript, went to a train station. It got stolen, the trunk. So there are three Hemingway novels uh, that are gone. Mm. And uh, he writes it in, in A Movable Feast. And you can see him just trying not to lose his temper. You know, she meant well. Her heart was in a good place. But, so I always imagine someone takes that trunk. This is a possible scenario. They think, ha, money, it's heavy. They open it up. It maybe, I think she only had the manuscripts or maybe something. But what is this? It's a bunch of papers. I'm a thief, I don't wanna get caught. I throw it into a storage, into a warehouse. So there is a real possibility. Like, why would you take all that paper and go dump it physically? Why would you do that? You, you would just leave it, you would throw it somewhere. So I have this fantasy that somewhere out there uh, are Ernest Hemingway's lost manuscripts. And uh, uh, if I could find those, I would be very happy. That's a great answer, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> I'm sure there must be there there must be objects that have just disappeared because of stories like this one, where it's just an inadvertent chance that makes things yeah. well, the culture yes. of something becomes lost inadvertently. And what I find fascinating about that one, like the teddy bear, is that we we didn't know that was valuable till later. It wasn't a gold egg that his wife lost. It was a bunch of manuscripts. At that time, Ernest Hemingway wasn't, I don't even know, he was barely published. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't any tragedy to anybody except him. Now, years later, knowing his, his legacy, it is a tragedy for all of us. But at the time, it was a tragedy for one person, Ernest Hemingway. And I think of the teddy bear. At the time, she didn't know that this, she had the, the template, and then she started reproducing them. She stored that. Rose Mitchum stored it. At that time, she didn't realize what an iconic object that is. So I find it interesting that there are things right now that we don't realize will be valuable or will be precious or will be part of our cultural heritage. We don't even, because you can't look ahead 150 years and find out. Maybe something on your desk right now. Maybe in the future you will become famous or infamous and something on that desk that right in front of you, maybe one of your pens is worth a million dollars in 50 years. You don't know. You're right. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> so because we're living in such strange times right now during this pandemic, um, has this affected the way you write? 
and and the production, the writing of this novel? Um, well, for I was lucky because I wrapped up all the travel before this novel was written. Before, I, I'd wrapped up all my travel before the pandemic. And the novel ends in Scotland, uh, in a bar in a town in Scotland where I went to, I went there in October last year. So I, that was the last trip for this book. So I finished up my, my travel in October. I'd already done a rough draft of the book. So the finder wasn't affected, but my next one has been really impacted because, and I'm not, it's not me. We all have the same story, the same situation. Um, but I think when you come out of travel, it's writing and that's part of your, your, your livelihood. Um, it's, it's even harder is this year I was supposed to be going to Iceland for a writer's retreat. And then I had a, a travel assignment to write a, a travel series on Iceland. And then from there, I was going to Moscow. And there's a train from Moscow to St. Petersburg. And I had a magazine assignment called A Tale of Two Cities to kind of compare Moscow and St. Petersburg. And on the way back, just for me, I was going to stop uh, at the Faroe Islands, which I've always wanted to visit north between Scotland and Iceland. So, and then this summer, uh, on, my wife and I had our 25th anniversary. And we... And again, this is, we all have these stories about trips or plans or dreams that, that we made. Um, I'm sorry, Will, I, I, I don't know if the whole audience did as well, but I missed, you kind of disappeared into outer space right after you said you and your wife celebrated your 25 year anniversary. Congratulations on that. But then your sound disappeared. Now you're back, but I, I missed uh, your anecdote. Okay, is this, can you hear me now? Yes. Well, I explained who really killed Kennedy, but it's too much to explain again. I'll just, I'll move, no. I, uh, uh, I was saying that in, just in my case, and, and just give me a wave if my audio kicks out, uh, so I don't uh, keep gesturing for nothing. Um, so I was saying just in, in my case alone, uh, I had a trip to uh, Iceland, Moscow, St. Petersburg, Faroe Islands, and a trip with my wife on the Rocky Mountaineer trained through the Rocky Mountains. So all of that has impacted, uh, and again, we all have these type of stories, but my next novel was supposed to be based in Iceland, Moscow, and St. Petersburg. So that's really thrown a monkey wrench into my schedule. Uh, and I don't wanna give it away, but the, the next novel is a finder novel. Those characters continue to the next novel. So it is part of a, a series of novels that I'm writing. And uh, so I'm kind of at odds. I'm doing a lot of research and writing around the locations, but my next novel is kind of on hold until I figure out how I can get to Iceland or Russia. So it does, it does impact. Okay. Yes. Uh, I think we, we've gotten sort of the first part, but not the second part. That's interesting because I, I missed a trip to Paris last spring, which I was quite disappointed with. I imagine, I imagine, yes. <laughs> but I'm hoping, like everyone else, when the world yes. gets back to normal at some point, I will see Paris. Yes, you can always drive through Paris in a sports car with the warm wind in your hair. Do you know that song? That's uh, about a girl who all her dream is just to drive through Paris in a sports car with the wind in her hair. You'll do it someday. I imagine when this, these strange days end, that there will be a flurry of travel. 
I, I expect. We're all just so, I'll tell you one thing that's, that struck me is that we like to believe, and what we're doing right now is connecting through the internet and through the on, online. And it's, I can't imagine living through this pandemic before this technology, like 20, I can't imagine 20 years ago how it would have been. But on, at the same time, it's a reminder that as much as we like to think we can live our life online, we desperately need human interaction, don't we? We desperately need to be able to sit in a cafe, go to a concert. And as, as wonderful as the technology is, nothing really replaces you going to Paris and walking down that street and being there. Um, so it is a reminder that uh, humans need to live in a, in a non-digital world. Yes, certainly. Well, thank you so much, uh, Will, for sharing your time with us today. Let me just see if we have any questions from the audience that could pop up either as a raised hand or in our Q&A, because we have some different tools here on uh, our platform. I'm not sure anyone else has gotten the chance to read this just yet, because as I was saying, we just got it at our library and I'm sure there's already a wait list. I was lucky enough to get my copy from uh, your publisher, from Sheila. So thank you again, Sheila, shout out um, for sending me a copy of the book. Danielle. Okay. Yes. Hi, this is Daryl here. Um, I have a question for Will. So I don't have that book, Will, but I'm going to show off a little bit because I don't often get to show off. I'm going to hold up this book. Oh man, that's uh, that book's out of print. Good job. It, it is out of print, and I bought it years ago when it came out. Bastards yeah. and Boneheads. For those listening on the phone, it's a Canadian history book. And when I read it, it was this revelation that oh my goodness, this is like, this is so much fun to read. This is like it's 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 heartbreaking and it's funny and it's all these things and blew my mind. I didn't know the Canadian history could be told that way. And I guess my question is that I was rereading part of it yesterday just to refresh my memory. It's told, like the, these characters sort of come to life, these historic characters, whether it's Samuel de Champlain or others. And how different is that pulling these characters from the past from, um, you know, characters that, you, that you're making up in your novels? Well, you, you're absolutely right. I treated, when I wrote that book, and I should explain the title, Bastards and Boneheads is a, a scientific system that I developed, a highly scientific system of dividing Canada's leaders. I have a computer, I punch in a bunch of numbers, I feed their name in, it whirs and it clicks, and then it says bastard or bonehead. So I evaluate them throughout history. But you are right. Um, you're absolutely right. I, I treated them like characters. I thought, let's treat them like a character in a novel. Uh, contradictory and funny and human. And sometimes we forget there's a trend lately to make all of our historical figures to be villains or heroes, depending on our current value system. So we, we take what, how, what we believe today and we look back and we say, according to our system, if you had those views today, you are a hero or you are a villain. And we forget that they're human. They're all human. I grew up in Western Canada. Um, uh, they tried and they failed. They failed. But they tried to tell us that René Levesque was an evil person. He just was this, he walked around all day going, I hate Canada. I will destroy Canada. And uh, whether you agree with his, his uh, 
policies or not, he was a fascinating person. He was very human. I mean, René Levesque, I'm just giving you an example. He was a very rounded, complex human uh, in the middle of history. So um, I wanted to treat ambassadors and boneheads how I treat my fiction characters, which is complex. Uh, no one's completely good. No one's completely bad, even though the title would suggest otherwise. But good on you to read that. That book's been out of print for quite a while. I think it's been out of print for 10 years or more. So good on you to have a copy. Thank you, thank you Daryl. Thank you, Will. Will, I see a question now that popped up in our chat. It is, how do you think of the objects? Uh, in my book? Well, one, one of the objects has been found. Um, I think, uh, see, I have my own contact with, I, I, like, there's, I should explain, in the novel, there's Fabergé eggs and there's Stradivarius violins. Those are very famous. But I'm, and I put those in there because partly people are familiar with those. I think most people know about the Fabergé eggs or they have an idea of the, the rarity of the Stradivarius. Uh, and I also had to kind of explain how the finder made his initial windfall of money because he's a very wealthy guy. Uh, and he initially made it through these Fabergé eggs. But I find much more fascinating are objects that are valuable because they were lost. They were misplaced. And I love the idea I mentioned earlier about there may be a pen on your desk right now that in the future people will be, can you imagine this is the pen she used um, when she signed something. And uh, I find the, the, of all the objects in the book, the one that I find the most compelling is Buddy Holly's glasses. Because one, it's just an everyday object. Two, it's iconic. Three, it's tragic. But more importantly, it was very logical where it was. So Buddy Holly in uh, 1959, a plane crashed in an Iowa snow, uh, snowstorm. It was called The Day the Music Died. That's where the song comes from. And on board that plane was Richie Valens, the big bopper, and Buddy Holly. And his iconic horn rim glasses were retrieved at the crash site. All of the evidence, they were tagged as evidence. They were put in the courthouse and forgotten. So for 45 years, Buddy Holly's glasses just sat in a box in a cupboard. And that's what I find interesting. And maybe it's because of my own messy office. I like to think maybe somewhere in my office, there's something in there that's, uh, that's remarkably valuable. And it's the idea that the, do you remember when you were a kid, did you ever play treasure hunt where they give you at a birthday party, they'd give you a list of objects and how fun that was? They never said, find a hundred dollar bill, find a diamond. It was find a penny from this year, find a, you know, it was all everyday items, but they were valuable because somebody wanted them. Because if you could gather these items, you'd get a prize or something, an extra piece of cake. So what I find interesting are the objects that are kind of everyday objects that have been infused with meaning rather than like the, the Fabergé egg is gold. It's valuable on its own. I mean, even without being lost, it's a gold object. So that's what interests me are those type of objects. So that being said, are you yourself a collector? No, I'm not. It's funny. I'll tell you, I'll tell you I, had, I had an epiphany when I was in grade five. Uh, I, I got into my head that I was going to collect stamps. And uh, I remember this moment. I think this is the moment my innocence was lost. This is the moment I realized how the world really is. Uh, it was a grade five. And I, I wanted for, I don't know where I got this idea, maybe a, a teacher or a friend or something, but I got my idea. I was going to be a stamp collector. I wanted to collect stamps. And um, 
So my mom, you know, bought me a bag of stamps and an album and I would go through and I would like these loose stamps and you'd pick them out and you'd sort them in Botswana. Oh, this is Ireland, you know, and you'd separate them by year and then you'd have an album and then you'd glue them in. And I did this all through the, you know, between that, that dead period between Christmas and New Year's, that dead week. And doesn't that, isn't that what the pandemic feels like for six months? You know, that dead time, Christmas, Boxing Day, let's say, Boxing Day to New Year's Eve, that kind of dead period. So I was working away in my stamps and I don't know what, four or five days in, I just had this moment. I looked at what I was doing and I thought, this is ridiculous. What's the point of this? Like, and I stopped stamp collecting. So I just, I just had this weird moment where I, could, I fell out of myself and I saw myself collecting stamps to no point. Like there was, I could see no, um, and I put away my stamps. And I, so my entire career as a collector lasted about four days in grade five. So I'm not actually a collector, oddly enough. Okay, thank you for that. I guess I was curious, I, I, I'm I, sure others would be as well. Can I apologize to stamp collectors out there? If there's any stamp collectors out there, that's just my opinion. I'm sure what you're doing is very, very fulfilling. Okay, so I just, I'm worried that there's some stamp collector right now mm -hmm. writing an angry email. <laughs> well, I, I haven't seen anything come up in, in chat, <laughs> so I think we're safe. Uh, before we go, Will, thank you again so much for My all pleasure. the time you've given us today. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Um, could you just maybe, as some parting words, give some uh, prospective writers uh, a few pieces of advice? Well, I, certainly I can tell you, um, I, I, don't, I don't, don't mean to end on a very somber note, but um, it's it, two things. One, um, write because you enjoy it. Um, and it's funny, uh, you know, people will play piano. People play guitar without ever thinking they're gonna record an album, right? People um, paint without thinking they're gonna be on display in the Museum of Modern Art. But there's a strange thing with writing that if you haven't been published, you feel you failed. But if you can paint for joy and you can play and practice music for joy, you can write for joy. You can write for your friends and for your, there's nothing, there's no shame in not being published and having royalties any more than there's no shame in being able to play the guitar and not being at Carnegie Hall. So that's my first advice is just write it because you enjoy it. And um, my second piece of advice, um, it's a little esoteric, so I'll, I'll warn you, is about writer's block, this, this mythical idea of the writer's block. I've never really had it. I'm, I'm, I avoid work like everybody. You know, sometimes I'll avoid or I'm, you know, or if I'm stuck on something, I'll walk it out. I'll go for long walks until I figure it out. But I believe that the core of real writer's block, which is more of an existential crisis, um, comes out of a confusion of the ideal and the real. So every book I've ever written is a failure from what I imagine. The book in my mind, 419, The Shoe on the Roof, the finder, what I, when I thought I'm going to tell this story, how I imagined it is never nearly as good, is never, what I write is never as good as what I imagined. So the book in my head is superior in every single way except for one. It doesn't exist. It's not real. So no matter how good you think the book is going to be, that book doesn't matter. That, the book that you imagine is not important. That book isn't real. Only what you put in the paper is real and it may be flawed and may be messy. It may not be what you want, but it's real. 
And on that score alone, it's better than anything in your imagination because it exists. So I think a lot of writer's block comes out of this sense that um, I have this perfect book in my, the book I want to write and the book I'm writing, there's a gap. Uh, and that's, I think, the root of, of quite a lot of, of uh, you can tell I'm the son of a philosopher, can't you? <laughs> I don't know how useful that is, but I do, that, I do believe that sincerely. I think I understand where you're coming from is if we just kind of latch on to this idea that it has to be perfect before being able to release it into the world, you may never get there. So focus exactly. on what you're actually doing and yes. you are putting your thoughts and your words and your inspirations out there. Yes. If you're waiting for it to be perfect in a little box, it may never actually reach beyond your desk. <laughs> no, abs that's, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, the, the book you write, however uh, disappointed or you know, unsatisfied you are with it, it's still better. A book that exists is always better than a book that doesn't exist. Thank you, Will. Thank you Thank very you much so for much. having me. And have a great rest of your day. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. And to everyone on your, I know it's not just you. I know there's a whole team of people behind you. So uh, please thank them all from me sincerely. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests. And thank you to you for listening here today. The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The telephone broadcasting service and podcast was launched as a way to get content into your home during the pandemic period. As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation. So we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.